Welcome to the Prancing Horse Podcast. Glad you can join us to learn about the history, news, and culture of the world-famous Ferrari. I'm your host, AJ, and I'm so excited to continue our Prancing Horse Podcast with this second news episode. My goal is to share the Prancing Horse culture with not only current, but also future generations to come. This series is going to explain the history of the brand. Anyone can Google Ferrari, but I wanted to be able to provide you with an insider's perspective. I have been working in the service department of a Ferrari dealership for the last 10 years. I started my career with them as a car washer, then apprentice technician, technician, master technician, to shop foreman, and now I'm the service manager. I've done many different Ferrari training courses. I have also competed in multiple master technician competitions, as well as doing some racing with them in the challenge series. I love Ferrari and what they create, so buckle up and let's talk history. After being charged with manslaughter and with the Millimillion now dead, Enzo stood trial and was ultimately acquitted with the court saying the high spectator count and lack of crowd control made the event very unsafe. During this time, Enzo was also grieving the death of his son Dino the year prior. Dino would pass away with muscular dystrophy, although things weren't all bad. Having set up Luigi Cinetti as a North American importer who opened Cinetti Motors in Manhattan, this was a pretty serious time for the brand, since by the 60s, 40% of all Ferraris were being imported into the U.S. But in 1958, Luigi Cinetti founded the North American racing team known as NART. With Cinetti's relationship with Enzo and his long racing career, this was important to the history of Ferrari as we see some special race cars and road cars alike come from the special projects through the request and relationship between Ferrari SPA and NART. With the death of Dino at only age 24, we saw a huge tribute towards Enzo's son with the new Dino engine design. Dino was a crucial player in this engine, spending time on his deathbed talking with engineers about what he thought would be an ideal engine configuration. He would unfortunately not live to see this new engine come to life, but the world would. Taking over from Dino, an engineer by the name of Vittorio Iano, the first iteration was a 60-degree and later turning to a 65-degree V6. This engine design would play a crucial role in the years moving forward. By 1958, the Ferrari team had taken home three Formula One championships, three World Sports Car championships, seven victories in the Millimilia, and two victories at the 24-hour of Le Mans. After winning every race between the 1952 and 1953 Belgian Grand Prix. The racing pedigree of the Prancing Horse was looking very strong. With the release of the 246 F1 using the new Dino V6 with a 2.4 liter displacement, the naturally aspirated new platform would take home a world championship win for Mike Hawthorne and a second place in the Constructors' Championship for Ferrari. This would be the first V6 F1 car to ever win a Grand Prix. It was also the last front-engine F1 car to win a Grand Prix at the 1960 Italian Grand Prix at Monza. That same year, we saw the 250 GT Pininfarina Coupe and the 250 Testarossa, or TR. The 250 GT Pininfarina will be covered in a future episode where we will break down all of the cars wearing the 250 moniker in more detail due to the sure length that that name was used and its success. 
but I do want to focus on the 250TR for a moment. Developed for the 1958 season rule changes of 3 liters of displacement in the World Sports Car Championship and at the 24 Hour of Le Mans, it would have a 3 liter Colombo V12. Using helical double valve springs and moving the spark plug location allowed for more head studs, which also resulted in better clamping force on the head and a more reliable car for endurance racing. Customer versions would be sold and raced in independent teams, although they were slightly different from team cars. With all of them being left-hand drive and having solid rear axles with pontoon fenders, the car would undergo many different iterations to the body to keep the car competitive. But the most famous iteration is the pontoon Testarossa, which was what all the customer versions were. Winning 10 World Sports Car Championship races, including the 24 Hour of Le Mans in 1958, 1960, and 1961, the 12 Hours of Sebring in 1958, 1959, and 1961, the Targa Florio in 1958, the 1,000 kilometers of Buenos Aires in 1958 and 1960, and the Pescara 4 Hours in 1961. This brought them to three World Sports Car Championship constructor titles in 1958, 1960, and 1961. With only 33 ever made and 19 of those in customer spec, this icon lives on today as one of the most sought-after and elegant cars ever produced. 1959 proved to be a learning season for the Ferrari team. With a not-such-great season and with the likes of Cooper and Lotus running rear mid-engine cars, this convinced Enzo that the future was in rear mid-engine configurations for racing. Thus, the 246P F1 was born. It debuted at the 1960 Monaco Grand Prix, retiring on lap 70 with a failed differential. But finishing the 1960 Italian Grand Prix in 5th, this car was short-lived due to, again, new F1 regulations, stating the engine displacement was to be decreased from 2.5 to 1.5 liters. We also saw the 250 GT short wheelbase, or the SWB, which will also be covered in more detail in a later episode, but it was possibly one of the most elegant cars that could be taken to the racetrack for a podium finish and then driven home afterwards. We also got the 400 Super America the same year. The 400 Super America was perfect for a client who wanted more exclusivity, refinement, and elegance. Using a slightly smaller engine but producing as much power as its predecessor, 335 horsepower, it was designed in a coupe, spider, or cabriolet. Seating four people, it was probably an amazing weekend warrior back in the day. In 1961, we got the 156 F1, the shark nose. In order to comply with the new regulations, the displacement was taken from 2.5 to 1.5 liters. The 156 F1 was dubbed the shark nose due to its air intake nostrils. Ferrari would swap the 65 degree V6 for a 120 degree V6. This was a better solution as a 120 degree V6 meant smoother power delivery because with a V6, every 120 degrees of crankshaft rotation, you get a power stroke. So delivery is smoother, more consistent, and it makes more power. In this case, 10 horsepower just by changing the degree of the engine. Unfortunately, Ferrari policy would see all the shark nose design 156F1s would be scrapped by the end of the 1963 season. There is a car at the Galleria Ferrari in Marinello, but this likely is a replica. The design, although maybe was questionable, it worked. Phil Hill won the 1961 World Championship of Drivers, and Ferrari won the International Cup for F1 manufacturers. 
1962, Phil Hill ran a six-speed version of the car, which was quite revolutionary at the time. This was also the year we saw the end of the lengthy criminal persecution of Enzo. The end was finally seen after a dismissal of the charges, but this spurred a deep dissatisfaction of the way motorsports were covered in the press. Enzo supported the decision to involve himself of the creation of a new publication, Autosprint. Enzo regularly contributed to the magazine for a few years, but not before another tragedy would strike right in Enzo's backyard. In 1961, Wolfgang von Trips was battling with Phil Hill for the Drivers' Championship at the Italian Grand Prix in Monza. Von Trips would qualify first and start the race when his Ferrari 156 would collide with Jim Clark's Lotus entering the Curva Alboreta in lap two. It would then veer off to the left side of the circuit, up an embankment, launching while simultaneously flipping into the crowd of spectators standing there. This would kill 15 spectators and injure a countless number of other spectators. Because at the time seatbelts were not used, Von Trips would be ejected from the car, almost certainly killing him on impact. Leaving spectators and Von Trips literally dead in the middle of the circuit, the most egregious part was the race continued on. The FIA responded later that this was to ensure the spectators didn't leave and created traffic jam for the cars taking the injured to the hospital. Later, Phil Hill would be crowned with the 1961 World Drivers' Championship. Unaware even that his teammate and 15 spectators had lost their lives during his drive to the podium. He won the championship because Von Trips had perished, nothing more. This really sheds light of the risk not only of driving, but watching the racing at the time. This accident is chalked up to be one of the worst motorsports accidents in F1 history. Shortly after this tragedy, in 1962, we had the great walkout. Enzo became notorious for his aggressive management style and his strong personality. With a weak title defense following Phil Hill's 1961 world title, Enzo's sales manager, chief engineer, sports car development chief, along with other high-profile employees, they would leave to go to work at ATS. But after an awful season, they would fold at the end of the year. During an interview in 1998, one of the managers who walked out said in an interview that they didn't leave, they were fired for a disagreement with Enzo. He even said that they did not handle the dispute well and ultimately shifted the blame mostly towards themselves even stating that they had betrayed his trust. The walkout came at a terrible time, but would ultimately prove to be a good move as the success of the 275 and Dino Road cars later would become icons for the brand. 1962 also saw the 250 GTO, or 250 Gran Turismo Omalagato. This is another of the 250 chassis that deserves a shout out here. Just 36 of them were ever made, designed for racing in the Group 3 GT racing. It would see the rivals of the Shelby Cobra, Jaguar E-Type, and the Aston Martin DP214. With only 36 examples being built, 33 of those being Series 1s, and 3 of them being Series 2s, the chassis was based on a modified 250 GT short wheelbase built around a hand-welded oval tube frame, using front A-arm front suspension, a live rear axle, disc brakes, and Barani wire wheels. Using an engine from the 250 Testarossa, and using a new 5-speed gearbox matched with a race car interior, think ultra-minimalistic, a star was born. Remember those gated shifters everyone loves? Well, it started here, and it carried through road cars for the rest of the manual shifters. Debuting at the 12 Hours of Sebring, driven by Phil Hill and Oliver Gindabar, 
The 250 GTO would finish second overall behind Ferrari's own 250 Testarossa, which was in the prototype class. The 250 GTO would go on to win the FIA's International Championship for GT manufacturers in 1962, 1963, and 1964. It also won the 1963 and 1964 Tour de France. The GTO is now arguably one of the most expensive and sought-after cars in the world. Holding the second, third, and fourth place in the top five most expensive cars sold at public auction, with the fifth place being held by a Ferrari 335S. This year we also saw the 250 GT Lusso. Replacing the 250 GT short wheelbase, this was a luxurious two-seater also with some GTO DNA. This is possibly one of the most elegant road cars to ever hit the market. This would be the last 250 street model to be created and the first to wear the designed by Pininfarina badge that would be seen on most road car models until around 2017. In response to a new prototype class, in 1963, Ferrari created the 250P. This was an open-top mid-engine car with no resemblance or chassis sharing from the previous 250s. Using a double wishbone suspension, a 5-speed transaxle, and the 3-liter V12 from the 250 Testarossa, this would be the first time a V12 engine was mounted in the rear of a Ferrari sports racing car. Overall, this was an overwhelming example of genius engineering, winning the 1963 24-hour of Le Mans, the 12 hours of Sebring, the 1,000 kilometers of Nürburgring, and the Canadian Grand Prix. None of the four chassis produced would stay in this form as they were all upgraded to a future form. Alongside the 250P was the 250LM, essentially a 250P with a roof, designed to replace the 250 GTO for the GT series of racing, Enzo was unable to convince the FIA to homologate it under the 250 platform as he had done with the GTO. He built 32 of the 250LM, quite short of the 100 required to enter in the GT class. Running the prototype class after that, the 250LM would win the 1965 24-hour of Le Mans with a 1-2 finish. We also saw the famous Ford vs. Ferrari attempted purchase of Ferrari by Ford Motor Company. Ford Henry II, in an attempt to boost sales, wanted to go racing. He wanted to win Le Mans. Unfortunately, Enzo would not release controls of the racing budget to Ford, which ultimately killed the deal with Enzo. Enzo would go on later to insult Mr. Ford, which created the famous rivalry. While dominating in prototype racing, a new 2 plus 2 luxury car was released in 1964 the 330 GT 2 Plus 2. This replaced the previous 330 America with a slightly longer wheelbase, adjustable Coney shocks, quad headlights, and an overdrive 4-speed. The Series 1 is the least desirable of the 330 GT 2 Plus 2. With the Series 2 introduced in 1965, it would have a 5-speed gearbox with a shift back to the dual headlights and an updated interior, the option of air conditioning and power steering. The Series 2 is definitely my favorite iteration of this model. Alongside the 330 GT2 Plus 2, we would also see the release of the 275 GTB and 275 GTS. Using a 3.3 liter V12 with one cam per bank, the GTB would have an entirely new bodywork design compared to the previous 250 models. The GTS would look a lot more like the 250s though. This would be the first Ferrari production road car with a transaxle although they were used in racing for quite some time leading up to this. The GTB is arguably one of the most beautiful cars to ever roll out of Marinello. The GTB would use a ladder frame design like what was used in the 250 Testarossa and the 250LM. A rigid drive shaft and chassis mounted transaxle 
would allow the engine and transaxle to act as a stressed member of the car. Its body would be designed by Pininfarina, but manufactured by Scaglietti, while the GTS was designed and manufactured by Pininfarina. On the GTB, it also had an option for an ultra-lightweight aluminum body. For the 1964 Formula One season, Ferrari brought out some big guns. A new Formula One car with a 1.5 liter V8 engine. The first Ferrari F1 car to also use a monocoque chassis. It won the 1964 Formula One Drivers World Championship, but not without some controversy. The last two races not being raced in the traditional Rosso Corsa, but rather a white and blue paint scheme due to issues with the homologation of the 250LM. The last two races would be run by the unofficial NART team. Ferrari would also build a V12 version that made 10 more horsepower known as the 1512. It would use the same chassis as the 128, but it was designed to be used in longer, faster circuits such as Spa and Monza. It would run in conjunction with the 158 for the remainder of the 1964 season, as well as into 1965. Although, in my opinion, the 158 was a much more well-rounded car. At the 1964 Geneva Motor Show, the 500 Superfast was released, replacing the 400 Super America. Using a 5-liter Colombo V12 that made 395 horsepower, it would push the car to 174 mile an hour top speed. Although it was very similar in construction to the 330 GT2 Plus 2 from earlier, only 36 cars were built, including 12 with a 5-speed gearbox instead of the 4-speed. 1965 saw the uptick in development for Ferrari's V12 prototype racers. The 275P2 is often pushed together with its bigger brother, the 330P2, which was also released the same year. However, they were substantially different in engine sizes and power. The 275P2 used a 3.3 liter V12 with four cams, two per bank. It also used a self-supporting body made of riveted aluminum sheets that we had seen in F1 cars of previous years. This body design would take place of the tubular space frame. Using six dual barrel Weber carburetors and two spark plugs per cylinder, it would take a first place podium finish at its first race, the 1000 kilometer race of Monza, and only two weeks later a victory at the Targa Florio. It would take a loss at the 1,000 kilometers of Nürburgring only because of the bigger 330P2. It would only participate in one hill climb event after that where it took a third place finish. The 330P2 is the same style chassis as the 275P2 but with a larger 4 liter V12. The output of that V12 was said to be around 410 horsepower. The car would take the victory at Nürburgring which would be its first and only race victory. Although this was overshadowed by the Ford GT40 taking its first victory at Daytona that same year. At the end of the 1965 F1 season, a 158 F1 car would be fitted with a 2.4 liter Dino V6, using fuel injection from Lucas. The car would be used more of a second car however in the 1966 season and would prove to not be very successful. The 1966 season would also see the Ferrari 312. Using a change in the new technical regulations, the car displacement was increased to 3 liters in an effort to return to power. The teams did not think this was going to happen, however they were the ones who asked for it. The prototype car used a 3.3 liter V12 that would later be brought back down to the 3 liter capacity limit. 
the car would take a win at the 1966 Belgian Grand Prix, but overall the F1 program was a little neglected due to the pressure Ferrari was facing in sports car racing from Ford. 1966 gave us the 330p3. In order to continue to compete with the GT40s in prototype racing, a new more aerodynamic body was designed and Lucas fuel injection was added. The P3 would take the win at the 1000 kilometers of Monza, beating out the Fords, and in this historical moment this would be the last victory at the original 10 kilometer Monza circuit with its banked turns. At the 1966 Targa Florio, the car was in a strong lead but ultimately crashed out. At Le Mans later that year, the 330p3 would fail to finish the race, and Ford would win the 1966 24-hour of Le Mans and the championship. The following year, in 1967, Enzo would see another death of a driver behind the wheel of his car. At the 1967 Monaco Grand Prix, Lorenzo Bandini, a longtime Ferrari driver, would lose control of his 312. The left rear wheel would hit the guardrail, sending him skidding, where he impacted a light pole and flipped over. The car had hit some hay bales, rupturing the fuel tank and starting a fire. With Bandini trapped underneath the engulfed car, unconscious, track workers would flip the car over and remove him right before the fuel tank exploded. With a chest wound, 10 chest fractures, and a third degree burn over 70% of his body, he would later succumb to the wounds three days later. A funeral was held in Rigiolo, Italy, where over a hundred thousand people would attend, leaving what I can only imagine to be a huge hole in the hearts of the Italian racing community, but also in Enzo Ferrari himself. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Make sure you follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of our new content. Also, make sure you interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and PrancingHorsePodcast.com. And as always, Forza Ferrari.